Hello and welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast with me, your host, Fabio Molle. Every week I speak to the big hitters in the world of tennis, both on and off the court, about the game and how we can all get 1% better every day at what we do. As an ex-national team player, I know exactly how tough this can be. So I'm on a journey to get the very best tips and advice from the world of tennis. This week on the podcast, we'll be talking about the art of coaching with Michael Lagarzo. Michael is a top tennis coach based in Australia. He works with a range of players from juniors just beginning their tennis journey to established tennis professionals like Zoe Hives. In our conversation, Michael explains why one of the keys of being a great coach is having a broad range of knowledge. We also discuss the best methods for motivating players and Michael shares some really interesting ways of keeping players engaged by making them more responsible for their own sessions. But before that, I want to know a bit more about Michael's own tennis journey and how he started out. So Michael, uh, how are you first of all? I'm doing great. Um, Busy. So it's coming to that time of the year, the end of the year. So coaching is finishing up and getting ready for the big summer um, of tennis here in Australia with um, you know, culminating the Australian Open in, in a month's time. So really looking forward to it. Great. Well, thank you very much for jumping on. I've been a big fan of your content for a few years now. Uh, you make great content. All your coaching posts that I make, our fans absolutely love. Really excited. This is long overdue, this chat, I think. So excited to have you on. But maybe let's start off with telling our audience a bit about what you do, who you are, and how your tennis journey began. Yeah, so I'm a tennis coach, obviously. Um, work with a whole range of players, starting from you know those, those kids who are very young who starting out probably have that dream of being a top player so helping them and a lot of performance juniors and you know as well as uh, professional players as um, working the main one with with Zoe Hives um, feel privileged that I'm able to be able to work at all kinds of different levels and I feel lucky because it gives me um, a great understanding of, of what each level needs. Um, so yeah, I feel really blessed to, to do what I do. Probably fell into it a little bit. It wasn't the ultimate dream to be a tennis coach. Um, it was always the dream to be a top player. Um, but fell into it and loving what I'm doing. And each and every day I get up and, and wanting to be better. And that's what's driving me. So my, you know, as I said, I started as a, as a player, had a dream as a, a young kid to be um, playing at the Grand Slams, being you know holding those big trophies up, didn't work out the way I wanted. So my journey started when I was eight years old. Just I remember my parents got me playing because they didn't want me to play Australian rules football and get hurt. Um, so they just put me into some tennis lessons and I picked it up really quickly, really loved it. Um, then started playing some tournaments and just started doing really well um, from at a state level. And that sort of drove me to want to do more and more and more. So I, you know, trained a lot more. And and I remember the, I think it was the 87 Davis Cup final when Pat Cash came back against uh, Michael Pernfors. And that really, you know, gave me that dream that I wanted to do this. This is what I wanted to do. Nothing else mattered. And, um, yeah, just started playing um, a lot of junior tournaments, state 
in Victoria, in the state that I live in, um, and then progressed to national level events. And it was probably around the time when I was 14 that I really started to, to make a jump um, at a national level, um, you know, winning 14 under nationals and, and, and playing, um, representing Australia as well and going overseas and seeing some of the top kids um, overseas is when I, my journey really started to take the next step. Yeah, and just progressed from there and, and was lucky enough to play Australian Open Juniors and, and go overseas and play Junior Davis Cup at the time. And, and that was with some great players like who you know ended up being top 10 players like, you know, Ivan Lubacic, um, you know, Karlovic was there and I know Shrichapan was one of the players who was, wow. who was my age as well. So I got to experience that. Um, and then gave it a shot at the pro level. Didn't quite work out the way I wanted. Um and quit probably early. I, was, I think I was burnt out. So about 21, I I stopped playing and I vowed I would never coach. Hmm. Uh, so I went to university and, and did a commerce and marketing and finance degree and and sort of was a little lost for a few years, um, probably a bit disillusioned with, with when I stopped playing um, and wasn't loving the game as much. Um, and then I just got offered a job out of the blue one day. I got an email um, from a guy in New York who offered me a job at his tennis academy. And I thought, well, there could be worse places to go than New York. So I did that, um, hopped on a plane, made a jump, felt like it was what I needed. And there I, I rediscovered my love for the game. And I, and I guess in a way I fell into coaching. And that's where my real coaching journey started. Um, spent two years there, came back and and have been going ever since. Great. Well, we're going to talk about your coaching journey, more about that in a few minutes. But first of all, going back to your junior days, do you remember like the exact day where you said, okay, I'm getting serious here. I'm all in. Yeah, no, I do remember. It was at the tournament called the Milo Masters in Melbourne. It was a 10 and under tournament. And it was the first time I'd played a state level tournament. And I made the semifinals, like, out of the blue. Like, had never seen any of these other other kids playing. It was the first time I'd play, and I thought, oh, you know, I'm actually pretty good at this. Um, and that's when I really felt like, yeah, no, this is what I want to do. This is this is the direction I want to head in. And what did you do to go all in? Like, did you just train every day, or what changed? Apart from the mental thinking to say, I'm all in. Not so much training more because I think I was training a fair bit but I think it was that belief that I can give it a crack um, and that I you know guess had a bit of talent and I could I could play the game um, I also at that time I remember I got selected for the Victorian Institute of Sport and I was one of the young ones so I think you had to be 14 to get in I actually might have got in when I was 13 and some of the the players who were also in that squad were the likes of Mark Philippoussis, um, Andrew Illy, um, and some of these older kids who were all like top couple in Australia in, in the different age groups. So they were the people I looked up to. And um, our coaches, we had Peter McNamara um, was one of our okay. coaches, and it was a really professional setup. And, and I think I just stepped up in terms of the the – level of training and the standards of training to to get to that top level whereas I was just working with my coach and and you know doing some squads here and there in in different areas but I think it was more the fact that 
I traveled a little bit more, was playing more internationally, playing more nationally and and being in the Victorian Institute of Sport and that set up and with all the other athletes in the different sports and given opportunities to do different things, um, I think the level of professionalism in what I was doing stepped up. I think that was the big difference. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Uh, your surroundings, you improved your surroundings and that helped step things up. And as a junior, I know you talked a bit about getting burnt out further on but did you have any challenges what was your biggest challenge as a junior some of my well one of the biggest challenges was um i was going to school as well so i wasn't homeschooled i wasn't um you know i was doing the regular school hours so i was finding time was a big thing so i know time to more so to want to train also but also to keep up with my studies because i think that was important um for my parents particularly so I, I do remember going, you know, train before school sometimes at, at 6.30 in the morning. I remember, you know, getting up early and leaving home, you know, at quarter past five in the morning to, to go to train a couple of mornings a week. And then, you know, right after school, I'd train from like 4 till 7.30 every afternoon. And with my parents working, having to make my own way there with public transport. So that, that, was, that was a lot. And then getting home and having to do homework, um, was difficult, so that was probably one of them. I think having access to um, world class, you know, competition against the the best juniors in your age in the world was difficult. Being so far away um, in Australia, and you had that opportunity a couple of times of the a couple of times of the year, which I was grateful for because I got picked for some of those teams. Um, so I think that looking back now and knowing what I know now, I think they were they were some real um, difficult things to to be able to get to where I wanted to, but I think also you know just financially, like my parents weren't you know flush with money or anything like that, and I was really lucky to have a coach who helped me out a lot um, from that aspect. So to be able to travel to to tournaments and and the financial costs that went with it, I, I find that was that was probably one of the biggest challenges. And ultimately, what was the the what kept the fire burning? Was it just the dream to go professional? Yeah, it's a dream. The dream keeps that 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 dream to get to that that ultimate level, to be top hundred, to be able to travel the world, to play the biggest tournaments. That that's what kept kept me going. Um, I, I remember the experience I had when I was eighteen, and I was I was playing the juniors, and I I played the men's qualifying. I got a wild card into that, and at the same time, I was also Steffi Graf's hitting partner, and I think it was. 96 Aussie Open so I was doing all those three things and and it just gave you that taste of what it could be like um you know being in that environment I remember going on practice course with Steffi and you know you'd put your bag down you'd look up and there'd be people everywhere all of a sudden um that's when the venue was much smaller so it gave you a taste of what those big events were like and I just wanted more of it and unfortunately I didn't get what I wanted as a player but that that's what kept the dream going. That's that's what kept the fire burning. Nice. That's yeah, it's definitely not it's great but not easy. What's the one thing you learned from being Steffi Graf's hitting partner? Um, the level of professionalism and how um, prepared she was. So the preparation was incredible. And also just on the court, just the focus and the attention to detail. Each I remember each session we were doing very similar drills um and they're all based around her game 
So it was the simplicity of it and also the attention to detail and the professionalism. Um, and I was lucky enough, her, her coach at the time was Heinz Guntard and he was really good with me in those sessions and I'll never forget that. Like He was giving me advice on, on, on yeah. my game and, and different things whilst I was hitting with her. But they, they were the main things um, was just that level of professionalism um, going to the practice court and it was all business and it was really specific and it was um, all set up and designed for exactly what she needed. So, okay, so moving on to more current times, you're a coach, you work with players of all ages, levels, and obviously you work with Ed Zoe, who's 150, is she in top 150 at the moment? No, she's no. she's in the seven hundreds at the moment. Oh, sorry. Been, oh, no, she, she yeah, she was one forty, but she's been playing on a protected ranking, and and she's she's had an illness the last three years. Um, so that set her back, but she's she's fit, she's raring to go, and hopefully have have a big um, big year next year. Okay, well that's I'm looking forward to that year. But what makes you love coaching so much, and what makes you a great coach? Um, I think for me, it's I'm have a real obsession and a passion for learning. Like I, every single day, I want to get better. You know, I'm one of those coaches who doesn't think, you know, they're 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 good enough, and yeah. and I'm always looking for ways that I can improve my craft, that I can and can be better. And and it's not so much from a a tennis skills perspective, but it's more how I communicate with people. Um, how people are thinking, you know, how I can get the best out of them, um, not only from a, a tennis level, but from a personal level and from a psychological level and, and all those areas. So I love learning off my team. So I think that's the biggest thing for me and what I try to instill with my players is that that hunger and that thirst for continuous improvement each and every day because um, I think without that you, you can't be successful in in anything so i'm really grateful to have those opportunities in in a lot of different ways and also you know i love going out and researching and and finding how i can be better that that's basically you know my philosophy as a coach is just getting better each and every day this new podcast format is heavily based on becoming better every day one percent better every day that's what functional tennis is about and no no better coach to have on to talk about this constant improvement uh, where do you find like for other coaches where do you dive deep to get you know to get more knowledgeable in all the aspects of tennis because we know it covers fitness technical strategy nutrition you have to know it all yeah you do you have to you have to have a a broad base of knowledge and that's something i really believe in so i don't need to know you know, every single detail of everything. But like I've done some, you know, sort of tennis, you know, fitness certification courses. I've done some, um, you know, some psychology stuff as well because I felt like I needed to have an understanding or at least a, a basic understanding of of things when I do talk to my fitness people, when I do talk yeah. to the sports psych, that I have an understanding of what, one, they're actually talking about, and 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 two, that I can instill these things on the court as well, and and know what I'm what I'm doing. I was I was very lucky. I had a coach who would do a lot of mental training with me from the time I was 12 years old. So I can remember, um, you know, doing visualization when I was 14, wow. and 
and going through that process and doing it the night before matches and, and, and going, you know, in a space by myself 30 minutes before a match and doing some visualization like, and, and it was really, really difficult. And I probably didn't use it as much as I could have because it was, it's just difficult to master. But like having an understanding of that has, has probably filtered into my coaching as well. And also I love learning from coaches in other sports. Like it's, it's actually, I've, I've, I love being in that environment. I've been lucky enough to be in, you know, other sports environments, you know, with teams and and in their player meetings and how they interact and what they do differently and trying to pick up, you know, different things that I can use, you know, with my coaching and with my players. And I love doing that. I love, you know, it's probably something I like to do more of nowadays is is seeking out other sports and, and what they do and what I can bring back to, to what I'm doing. Great. No, there's definitely a lot to learn and it's, it's you know, it just gives you new insight. But looking back, let's say your career's finished, you hang up your, your tennis rackets and you're, I'm going to relax on the, the sunny side of the, of Australia, which is everywhere. Uh, what would make you proudest of, what would make you happiest looking back your coaching career? Um, I think it's knowing I've made a difference. Um, I think as coaches, we have, you know, an incredible responsibility to the players we coach. And I think there's a, there's a sacred trust there that we have that, um, I take very seriously and and feel like I have a great responsibility to these people. So knowing that I've had an impact, um, not only in their in their tennis career, but probably their life as well, and and their you know lessons taught that they can take away with them afterwards. And I think knowing that players reach out to you, um, you know, even after you stop working with them, I think is 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 one way that 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 happens. But I think that's that's the biggest thing for me is knowing that I've made a difference. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. I think you spend so much time with players. I know some not so long, but in general, and I think I looking back at coaches myself, you definitely learn something from them. And there's a, you learn more for the off court stuff, and that'll help you be better on court as well. But it's definitely you're doing great, setting good, insp- good, insp- inspiring players, and looking at players, junior players. What advice do you have for them, Michael? Some that are overtraining burnt out or have you know some sort of setbacks looking back at your junior career and what you've learned as a coach what advice would you have for players and for their parents to you know to help them get through these situations or possibly not to get into these situations i think the most important thing is is to know where you're at each uh, at every stage so i think sometimes um younger players and parents can start to lose track of where they they are and may think they're further ahead or they have to do this because others are doing this and not following their own journey and path. So I, I like to start at the end goal. Okay. So, you know, if there's a young player that wants to be a professional um, and they may be, you know, 10, 12, 14 years old is, is I'll work back and I go, okay, what are we, where are we at now? What do we have to do? What are the goals? Where do you need to be in, you know, two years' time, in three years' time, four years' time, what's the journey look like for this particular player? Are they going to go to college? Are they going to be able to transition really quickly? Um, and I think it's all about planning and then knowing where you're at. You know, Do some players need to focus more on the, the physical side right now because um, 
you know, or did we have to slow them down because of their growth spurt? And I think sometimes to gain junior results, we sometimes lose track of that. So my advice would be to know exactly where you're at, um, have patience. Um, and, and someone, you know, I heard the analogy the other day, is it's what I find in junior tennis, it's like cha- imagine a child changing schools every year how their education would go. And I find in junior tennis that happens a lot where we're changing coaches constantly, we're doing different things. So the ones who tend to have more stability tend to last longer. Um, now, that's not saying that you have to find, you know, you might need to change coaches to find the right coach. And and as a coach, I've always said that, you know, if I'm not the right person, then I'm more than happy to for them to move on. But I think that's the biggest advice I would have. It's a long journey have the patience, stick the course, so whatever your, your path, and don't get deviated by um, the fear of missing out. Um, I find, you know, the, the, we're looking for that magic silver bullet and it doesn't exist. So, yeah, follow your own path, not someone else's. We've had plenty of coaches on the podcast before and some of them speak it out as where they analyze the player and they say, okay, well, in 21, this is what you're going to look like. You know, they're, they're trying to gauge what's going to look like you forehand this and they work towards that and they build that plan, as you're saying, and they try and instill this patience in their, you know, the, the growth of their game. And it's it's hard for a kid to buy into that and parents to buy into that because as you said, they don't want results today. They don't want to wait and that can be tough. But looking at players, the top guys and girls, they're all competitors. Nearly the better somebody is, the bigger competitor they are. They can just compete. And how do you instill competitiveness in the training sessions? How do you make them better competitors? Yeah, and that, that's massive. I think without being a good competitor, you can't be a top player. And, um, you know, only recently, you know, when I was in the US, we did a, a little tour with with Tennis Australia and, and were able to one, – the one thing that came out was the level of competitiveness um, in everything they do over there, um, com- you know, probably a little more than what – we may have even here and how do we instill that and and I think and coming back I've made changes in my coaching a little bit to to try to create those situations even more so even more so than I did before whereas I felt like I was doing it before but I've placed an even greater importance on it um, and it's more about creating the environment so you know, if they're coming to a session with me or if they're hitting with other players or another one of my coaches is taking a play, is what kind of environment we can we can uh, create to bring that out of them? And, and it may be, you know, we may be working on some technical stuff, but how can I make this competitive? How can I get that out of them? Um, so I think the environment you create is, is crucial. Um, I'm one who likes to create situations that creates adversity. Um, so, you know, I like to see how they react. Um, do they thrive or are they just trying to survive in those situations and try to instill that and also teach them at the same time. So I don't necessarily always give them the answers. I like to allow the space for them to grow. And then also what is competitiveness? I think it's a definition of competitiveness. Um, you know, a lot will, will say, well, it's, it's, you know, bringing your best every day or trying hard, but, you know, it also includes, um, you know, your problem-solving skills and your emotional management and how you're, you know, counteracting, you know, an opponent's game plan and 
and all those kinds of things. And on, on a given day, you know, things may not be working the way you want and, and what are you doing in this situation? So I think it's helping them understand what competitiveness actually means and and defining what that is and then having them live that every single day. And tell me some of your non-negotiables. Um, so for me, it's um, being accountable. So taking responsibility for everything you do on the court um, or off the court. So, you know, maybe how you warm up, for example. You know, if the if the warm-up's not to the standard, it's not making excuses, it's not doing that. Just take being accountable, okay, we need to get better. Um, that's one of my um, non-negotiables is the accountability side. So that really frustrates me. <laughs> um, another one is I want them to have a goal set, a purpose when they go out on the court. So, you know, maybe say, well, what are we working on today? Well, you know, I've sort of got a plan of what we're going to work on, but I like to ask them to make sure they've come to the court prepared and, and ready to go. I think this is a really interesting point Michael's making here. So often we expect our coaches to guide our development and goal set for us. But by encouraging the player to have their own daily training goal, you create accountability, autonomy, and the player is going to be far more engaged as a result. This podcast is brought to you by ASICS Tennis. ASICS is a Japanese company founded in 1949 with the purpose of giving more people the opportunity to experience how sport and movement can have a positive impact on mental well-being. They just launched their most innovative tennis range ever. Get the new Cord FF3 Novak or Gel Resolution 9 at ASICS.com. ASICS Tennis have also just launched their new Cord FF3 Novak, the only tennis shoe designed with Novak Djokovic input. To learn more about ASICS, visit their website www.asics.com. This is just a quick reminder you're listening to Functional Tennis, the podcast that helps you get 1% better every day. With me, Fabio Molle. Coming up, Michael explains why he encourages his players to ask questions and scrutinize their sessions. And he also gives his advice for how we can all get 1% better every day. But first, I want to ask Michael how he keeps his players motivated on a daily basis. You know, bringing the heat every day with intensity and, you know, want to improve every day requires a lot of persistence. And look, some days can be tough, as I'm sure you know more than me with players and trying to get them motivated. How do you... How do you keep them persistent? Do you always go back to the plan or how, how do you keep them motivated is another word to, to, to use? Yeah, always. Always go back to the plan. And the other thing is each and every player is different and has different reasons why they're playing. So whilst they may want to, you know, they may say, oh, well, I want to be top 100 in the world, but that might not be their, their real motivation as to why they play. Um, so it's actually digging deeper and finding out what drives them, um, which is really hard when you have a lot of different players you're working with. And sometimes they won't tell you, so it takes a while to do that. And once you find what it is that drives them, I always go back to that. So, you know, the first one is like, I'll always go back to why are you playing? Why did you start playing in the first place? What made you want to come back on the court when you had your very first lesson? And usually it goes back to, well, I just loved hitting balls. You know, I just love doing that. And I say, well, that's part of our motivation to get back to it. But um, it's what's driving them, what's making them want to get out of bed. It's the, it's the end goal. Like I always go back to what's the goal? What are we trying to achieve? And, and goal setting. Goal setting is really important. Um, 
you know, a lot of players will set goals, but it's those daily goals. It's those, you know, I'm a process orientated coach, so I'm all about the the process. So I find that by focusing on the process, um, you will you'll get that daily persistence. I think once the results come into play and you have a bad run. Um, and it becomes too results orientated. I find that players can lose motivation and and can lose a bit of enjoyment in what they're doing. And if they're not enjoying it, they're not going to be you know able to bring their best every day. So I think that's that's crucial for me is making sure that the process and and the goal set in is there each and every day. And it goes back to the purpose and clarity that I spoke about earlier. When there's purpose and clarity in everything you're doing, you're going to come and bring your best every day. And what about discipline? Do you see discipline in the same sort of realm as them or do you see it a bit, a bit, a bit different? No, it's exactly the same. Like the discipline comes from um, knowing what you're actually trying to achieve. Um, without, you know, the discipline to do the extra work, the discipline to go out and hit those extra serves, the discipline to to stick to your, you know, your, your fitness program and, push yourself when you may not want to or, you know, you've had a, you know, you're going through a, a training block where, you know, you're hurting physically but you know you need to, to push. It's it's all part of it. They're all they're all intertwined. They all work together. It's not like, you know, one is different to the other. I find that they, they are all working together. So, you know, the discipline, the motivation to, to come back. The discipline comes from having the motivation. So if you've got that motivation to come each and every day to work hard to achieve your end goal, you will be more disciplined. And, and at the end of the day, I think it comes back to how much do you want it? How much do you care? Um, and if players aren't willing to do the extra and aren't willing to do the discipline, well, do they really care enough at the end of the day? And, you know, as coaches, we can't force players to do things we can guide them and, and educate them and, and we sort of facilitate the process for them but it, you know ultimately it comes down to the play and how badly they want it do you have to do something else that other people aren't doing well n- not necessarily but it's that willingness to to do the extra um because look to be honest most players are, are doing you know a whole heap of stuff and and, and everyone's different. So what one player needs, another player might not need to do. So I guess, you know, for the juniors, it's more the lesson that, you know, well, are you willing to go out and, and hit, you know, 50 extra serves or stay back after, you know, it's like some, you know, the team sports, you hear of those, those, the Ronaldo top. Or... Yeah, Ronaldo or Michael Jordan back in the day or, or, or so-and-so who are there before everyone at training and leave after everyone at training. Are you the one who leaves right when my session's finished or are you there doing the extra work, the extra serves, you know, the extra, the forehands, the yeah. extra, you know, backhands because you want to master it. You know, I guess that's what I'm talking about is are you willing to do, you know, what others Ah. Yeah, no, that, that makes total sense. And you, you talked about earlier where you said you had to find your own, you had to walk, find your own way to train and your parents weren't giving you a lift. And it reminds me of my brother-in-law who would have grew up in a, in a Gaelic soccer household here, which would be similar to Aussie rules. And he wanted to play soccer instead. And the parents said, if you want to play soccer, you're going to have to walk. And he used to have to walk miles to train himself, wouldn't get lifts. And there was just that burning passion to play. But Michael, how do you control think somebody their their heart they're, they're burning they just want to play so much they're intense 
but you've instilled patience in them. You've got to say, wait, slow down there. How do you make sure they're, they're patient and you're trying to reel them back in because they're too eager? Yeah, I think it's education. I think you've got to – I think a big part of, of coaching is educating both players and parents. And, and, and knowing where you're at is, I guess, what I was talking about earlier because, you know, there'll be sometimes players who do too much mm. and you've got to reel them back. And you've got, but you've got to educate them as to why you've got to reel them back. And I think once they have an understanding of why, um, they're more likely to do it. But if you would just tell them, you know, you're doing too much, you need to back off, you, you know, okay, well, I'm not going to listen to you. I, I tell my students and my players is if I tell you to do something and you ask me why and I don't have a good enough answer for you, don't do it. You know, and I would like them to, to just be like that in generally. You know, ask why, ask a lot of questions. And if I can't give you the answer, then don't listen to me. Nice. And the question thing is real funny where you get the players ask questions. I've read enough about, I've read all the biographies of great tennis players, great business people, and been, been lucky enough to be around some of the support teams of some of the great players. And they always say, they ask questions. They want to know why, why, why. And once you have an answer for them, they're happy. But if you don't have an answer for them, you're nearly going to get fired. You know, you need to know why you're telling these greats to do stuff. And once the answer comes in, they're happy. They'll see through you immediately. Like, you know, if you're working with high-level players um, and good players, um, they have a BS meter is what we like to call it, is they'll yeah. see through you right away. Like, Immediately, so you need to know your stuff. You need to know why we're doing stuff and have conviction in it. Like you have to believe in it because if you don't believe in it, there's no way known a player is going to believe in it. And I think even you know junior level going you know further down, um, those players who want to get to that level, it's 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 the same. They want to know who you are and what you've done and and why you've done it. And it's really important to know your stuff. Yeah, I agree, 100% agree. And uh, Michael, moving forward, what's your plan as a coach? I'm excited at what's, what's, what's ahead. I'm sort of in a, I want to say transition period, but just a period where I'm thinking about what the next step is and, and what my goal is. Like my, my passion for coaching and my goal in coaching is I want to produce, you know, top players, um, which I know a lot of other coaches want to do, so I'm not alone in that. But how do I do it? So, you know, in, in I know in our our academy, you know, we're looking at at how we restructure our performance pathway and how we even go younger than what we're doing now a little bit um, and what that looks like going forward. And then from a, a, a you know, pro um, perspective, still working with Zoe. So we've got an exciting summer coming up. So still keen to get her continuity and, and some, some work on the road because I think there's still some um, – still a lot of life in her and, and we can get back you know not only where she was but higher I think and and I, you know, I think Wimbledon and you were there at Wimbledon where she qualified gave her a lot of confidence when she'd hardly played at all um, so that was a great experience and probably gave her that confidence but also looking for new projects and looking for new challenges is is what I'm all about so I, I'm like an open book great and what advice do you have for you could say players and coaches, I know they're separate, who want to be 1% better every day. What's your number one bit of advice for them? If you think you know everything, you know nothing at all. So my advice would be each and every day, keep learning, keep looking at for new ways to get better. Um, invest in yourself, invest in your own development 
be it player or coach, and always strive to get to the end of the day and know you've done something that's going to improve you as both as a, as a person and professionally. Nice. Thank you very much. I have a bonus question here. It's not on the list here. The Sabre. Have you been using the Sabre? I have been using it. Tell me, what is it good, bad? Tell your honest truth here. No, no, fantastic. It's harder than it looks. So the first time I used it, just the timing of it, um, it was interesting. You have to hit it cleanly, and it's great because once you go back to your, which is obviously the purpose of the of the saber. Hmm. But I actually found it more difficult than I thought I would. And okay. then once I got the hang of it, I was hitting it really cleanly. And then I went back to my regular racket, and I was it was yeah sweet as like I was hitting it straight in the center, but. It's amazing how you've played so many years and you think you hit it in the middle and then yeah. you realize that, okay, no, I need, I still need a bit of work on this as well. And what would be your number one reason for giving it to one of your junior players to use? For finding the contact point. So okay. I think I felt it was really good in, in, in contact point and spacing uh, made a massive difference for a lot of the kids. Like I, I've, I've used it with a lot of the juniors and at first – they found they got too close to the ball and they weren't hitting through the ball. So the one, the biggest thing it did was the spacing, the contact point, and also um, allowing them then to hit through the ball a lot better and stay with the ball a lot longer. And, and they started hitting a lot deeper. And, and that was the biggest benefit I got from using it with the kids. So it was, it was fantastic. So I have to thank you for giving it to me when I saw you in London. Great. No, I just want, I said, I just want to ask, sometimes I get people on who used it. I'm like, or it would have been the pointer before. And I was like, no, I better not forget. But no, Mike, thanks a lot. Uh, really great hearing about your story. I hope to meet you at a slot. I was hoping to get down to Australia, but it's not going to happen, unfortunately. So I'm relying on some good content from you. And, uh, but no, I uh, hope to see you soon again. And thanks for jumping on. It was really great to find out more about you as a player coach and what drives you. My pleasure. I loved, uh, loved chatting to you. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks again, Michael, for sharing your insight into coaching. It was really valuable and I can see why so many top players have worked with you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Functional Tennis Podcast. Next week on the podcast, I speak with former player and now physical therapist and founder of the tennis tour agency, Matteo Tinelli. In the episode, Matteo explains the purpose behind the TTA and why he wants to make GoPro more accessible for younger players. Matteo also shares his advice on overtraining and how to come back from injury. So hope to see you there next week. Just a few quick notes before we go. Make sure to follow the show so you get automatically notified about new episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about me or the work we do at Functional Tennis, visit our website at functionaltennis.com. You can also follow the show on Instagram at the Functional Tennis Podcast and with me on Twitter, Fab Mall. This podcast is produced by One Fine Play. James Bishop is the executive producer. Connor Foley is the series producer. Kazra is our superb audio engineer and editor. I've been your host, Fabio Molly. Thanks for listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Hey!